Let's turn together, please, to Colossians chapter 2. This is one of those texts, Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, that seems too good to be true. Now, if you just skip along the surface, which is sometimes tragically what we do whenever we read the Bible, if you just skip along the surface, you'll miss it. But if you take time to ponder Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, your estimation of this text, the, the, the notion that you have, the feeling that you have, is that there's no way that that's true. What Paul puts in front of us here today in Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10 is this simple but profound notion. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. He is very God of very God. And we have been filled in Him. Everything that Jesus is and has He offers us that we might find newness and satisfaction. And that seems way too good to be true. And it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit will make that plain as we move through this text. But I do say to you, my dear friends, that it is true. And there is perhaps no better text that we can consider And in the Spirit's providence, we find ourselves in the next set of verses that we have to cover, verses 8 through 10, and it's perfect for this week. So as we consider a life of gratitude for all that God has done for us, this is the best thing. This is the thing that we should be most thankful for, that He has renewed us to Himself through His Son and offers us Himself in fullness, and we lack nothing. And Paul's contention for us today in these verses is that we are complete in Christ. You lack nothing. Now, if we were to break up into small groups, and I promise you, I've already made you do something awkward today, I won't make you do that. But if we were to break up into small groups and get really vulnerable for a minute and talk about all of our deficiencies... We could go on and on and on. I have a lot of them. I weigh more than I wish I weighed. Um, my nose is kind of big. I'm balding. Um, I'm not near, nearly as athletic as I wish I was. Um, I'm more selfish than I wish I was. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on and on. I don't like kale. According to my wife, I should like kale. Um, I eat too much meat. Um, I think about myself too much. Sometimes I'm too lazy. I mean, I could seriously go on and on and on. We, we could do that. We could talk about our deficiencies. And I think because of human nature living in a fallen world, we who are broken, redeemed yet broken in a fallen world, we are acutely aware of our deficiencies. And it's easy for us to highlight those. And if we are being honest, as mysterious and spiritual, spooky as this may seem, the evil one loves to whisper in our ears and remind us of all of our deficiencies. 
which very often eclipses our view of Christ, like the moon can move in front of the sun and eclipse our view of it for a few brief moments. But the problem for us is that far too often our view of Jesus and all that He is for us is eclipsed and we curve inwardly. St. Augustine and later Luther talked about this inward curve. It is like spiritual scoliosis where we, we turn in upon ourselves and we, we struggle with our deficiencies and sometimes unhealthfully we try to, to shore up those deficiencies or deflect from those deficiencies by posturing and, and maneuvering which leads us to judgmentalism and to self-comparison with other people around us. And that horizontal mess is a direct reflection of our inability to vertically see who we are in Christ who is all-sufficient and is pleased with us. And God who sent His Son to take on flesh to keep the law that you would not and I would not and could not keep, and to die to take our punishment that every single one of us deserved and then buried and rose again in conquest over sin and death has renewed us to God, we who have placed our faith in Him. And God looks down on us today and He does not see incompletion and He does not see deficiency. And I say to all of you, and I remind myself that God is pleased with you. And if you're like me, you're saying to yourself, no, He's not. But He is, because He sees you robed in the righteousness of His eternal Son. He does. This text seems too good to be true. Let me read it. See to it, Paul warns, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you, we, have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. So today, my friends, let us consider that we are complete in Christ. Paul has been warning these Colossian believers that there are dangerous doctrines about which they must be aware. Doctrines which eclipsed or diminished Jesus, causing the Colossians to consider that perhaps they needed something in addition to Jesus, causing them to question His sufficiency to save. But Paul tells us throughout this letter and here again today in verses 8-10 through of chapter 2, that Jesus is the fullness of God, preeminent in creation and redemption. He is Lord of the universe and Lord of the church. And the gospel, the good news, is that we have been granted the almost too good to be true privilege of being united to Him, not through our own merits or works, not by, by achievement, not through acts of appeasement of some distant angry deity, 
but by reliance upon the gracious, loving Jesus. We have been redeemed from our enslavement to sin and the domain of darkness. We have been granted all that we need both for life now and in the age to come, world without end. Jesus has done all of that. And so our text today proclaims to us the central truth. We are constantly bombarded, constantly bombarded with empty and harmful temptations to find our satisfaction and security in things other than Christ. That's a summary of this text. I'll read it again. We are constantly bombarded with empty and harmful temptations to find our satisfaction and security in things other than Christ. Some of you listen to podcasts. Some of you read sermons. And so you might say that some of us throughout the week are people who, who take in the Word through preaching on a regular basis. If nothing else, we come together as God's people corporately on Sundays and we hear the preaching of the Word. Perhaps you are participating in a small group or in one-on-one or small group discipleship, and I commend all of that to you. But the truth of the matter is, whether you realize it or not, is that you are listening to preaching all of the time. The culture is constantly preaching to you. It's preaching to you messages of of security, of, of where you can find your satisfaction and fulfillment, what you should wear, what your body should look like, what your relationships should look like, how you should spend your money, how your family should appear to others, and on and on you go. The culture is constantly preaching to us. And the problem for far too many of us is that though this bombardment is all around us, we don't recognize it or see it. And far too often we are shaped by the sermons, by the preaching of the culture, more than we are by what the Scriptures actually teach and what God says to us about who we are in Christ. And we would do well to heed Paul's warning to be aware of this constant bombardment, this enculturating sermonizing to find our satisfaction in anything or anyone other than Jesus. So Paul's warning to us in verse 8 is this, let us be vigilant toward and discerning of the dangers. When I was a kid, I love to read Louis L'Amour Western books. Anybody read Louis L'Amour Western books when you're growing up? If you didn't, you have, you have severely missed out. Um, I didn't want to be a fireman or a police officer or a soldier when I was growing up. I wanted to be a cowboy. My mom was a piano player, so she, we had a piano in our, in our family room. Well, it was the living room, which we were not allowed to go into because that's where my mom preserved space for guests, which never came, right? But in that room, there was a piano, and I was allowed on the piano bench, and the piano bench was my horse, and I would take my blanket, I don't know what age this was, like maybe eight, and I would take my light blue, baby blue blanket, and I would put it on the 
the piano bench, and that was my horse, my steed, and I would put my cowboy hat and my cap guns, because I had really good cap guns, and my holsters and the cowboy boots and my hat and my like flannel shirt. My, my kindergarten picture is a perfect picture of my Levi's cow, uh, cowboy shirt, and I would put all of my garb on, and I would sit on my horse, and I would jump up and down, and I was a cowboy. And as I got older, I read Louis L'Amour books, and, and Louis L'Amour books are about these tough cowboys. Um, they, they always got the girl at the end, so there was always like a little bit of romance. Um, they were tough as nails. They could be shot like 11 times in the torso or, or speared by, by a Native American, and they would come through in the end. But, but at night, they were in the most danger, and they would gather around the fire. If you didn't know this, I'm going to give you some, some cowboy education. Um, if you didn't know this, real cowboys never slept with their eyes near the fire at night because if the enemy came around them like rustlers or whatever, um, and they woke up really fast, they wouldn't be able to see because their eyes would be blinded by the fire. So really good cowboys sleep with their feet near the fire. And, but there's always one of their buddies who, who was in the perimeter of the encampment watching. He's always on watch. And then somewhere halfway through the night or so, they, they bed down and put their head on their saddle, and then they wake up one of their buddies, and that guy is on watch for a while. And you have to be vigilant, because when you're out on the prairie at night and there's rustlers around, you better be careful, because they'll steal your horses and kill you and take your jerky. <laughs> Vigilance is demanded of cowboys, and it's demanded of us. We must be watchful, we must be aware And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 8. He says, see to it. Quite literally, this means beware. Be on your guard, for there are dangers lurking about. He tells them to be aware of being taken captive. This term was used in the original language to watch out for pirates who could come on your ship and take your treasure. He didn't want them to be carried off as booty or as captives. What was it that was going to carry them away? It wasn't going to be a literal kidnapping or a costment, but it was going to be done through philosophy. Paul is not decrying or putting down the pursuit of knowledge or truth, but of the particular philosophy that was infiltrating this city and this church. What was it characterized by? Paul calls it empty deceit. There was just nothing to it. It offered a lot, but when you really stripped it down, there was nothing to be gained from it. You know the story of the emperor who had no clothes? A tailor comes along and promises the emperor that he can weave for him an amazing set of clothing that will cause the people of the city to be in awe of him even more than they already were. And so, on and on the story goes. I won't give you all the details, but you probably well remember he is checked on by the king from time to time. And as the king comes into the weaving room, nothing is happening, but he tells the king, of course, that these are invisible clothes and they're beautiful and it will cause the people to, of course, be in awe. And eventually, the king is duped by all of this and on, on parade day, he parades himself in front of the people and all the people are scared to tell the king what is obvious, that he doesn't have any clothes on whatsoever until a little boy pipes up and says, he has no clothes on. That's what was going on with this kind of philosophy. There was lots of talk, lots of flash, but there was nothing to it. Paul wanted to warn the Colossians that they had Christ. Back in verse 3, he said of Christ that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
they had far more than they could ever conceive of. And the contention Paul is making is, why would you trade that, everything, for this, which is nothing? Be on guard against adding to Christ, because anything you add to Christ will eclipse Christ and will never deliver on its promises. So this philosophy was characterized by by sheer emptiness. Where did it come from? Well, from human tradition, Paul says in verse 8. Traditions that had grown up over time. There was probably some, some Jewish aspect to this, an aspect that had gone far from from faith and trust in the living God to just keeping up appearances and keeping rules. Not only did it come from human tradition, perhaps its ultimate source, as Paul says again in verse 8, is that it came from the elemental spirits of the world. Paul is saying here, probably without any real subtlety, that this is demonic. Satan knows that he cannot conquer Christ. He knows that but he will do his dead level best with his last gasps of air like a caged animal that has been dealt a death blow. He will do his dead level best as long as he is breathing to try to eclipse Christ and ruin his people. And that's what he's doing. And anything that preaches to us, that calls out for our attention and our affections beyond Jesus will harm us and will never, ever deliver on its promises. We have seen this throughout the history of the church. The church is almost inexorably drawn to keeping up appearances and losing the substance of who we are in Christ. Almost every single mainline denomination in the Western world has completely abandoned the gospel altogether. Are we any better? Are we insulated from such pressures that we could not be the same? Now, don't misunderstand, our culture certainly is spiritual. You hear this all the time. I, I'm not religious, but I'm, but I'm spiritual, which basically means I make up whatever I want to make up. I've got my pantheon of gods that serve my purposes, and, and it's just nothing at all. But we believe an historic faith which reveals to us an historic Savior who really came to the world and really took on flesh and really died and really rose again, really now reigns in heaven and advocates for us, and we have every reason to hold fast to Him who is the head of all creation and this church. Let us hold fast to Him who holds fast to us. We need nothing else. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
Paul throws down a gauntlet here. He does not mince words. And in an age like ours where, where real truth, proclamational statements of certitude and assurance, when in an age like ours where, where statements like that are, are seen as passe, as inflexible, we must with meekness and humility and winsomeness hold fast to what we know to be true, and we cannot give up on it. Which is why all of the time we must come back to the gospel over and over again. I have joked with you before from Luther's well-known statement. He was approached by one of his parishioners, and they said, I guess, Pastor Luther, why do you preach the gospel to us all the time? In other words, we know it. And his response, as you have heard before, was, because you always forget it. We are bent towards self-righteousness. We want to establish our own goodness. We easily are distracted and bored. But by the grace of God, may we hold fast to what we know to be true, and may God's Spirit enliven our hearts and enliven our minds to embrace the central truth, this, this simple truth that we who are sinners deserve the wrath of God, but Jesus has come and taken that wrath in our place and offers us His righteousness. Let us never grow bored. Let us not be distracted in embracing this good news. How should we respond to such a hostile environment? Because it is, we, we are like pilgrims, we are like, like aliens here in this hostile place. Should we escape? As you survey church history, there have been those who have sought to do that, creating convents and communes and monasteries and communities where they can insulate themselves from the world. Of course, the ironic problem with all of that is that little commune or whatever the case may be is filled with sinful people. You can't keep the sin out. For those of us who have come to faith in Christ, who are no longer fallen, who are complete in Him, how should we respond to such a hostile culture that is bombarding us with, with untruth, with, with things added to the gospel? Should we escape? Should we protect our kids and, and huddle up so nothing can infiltrate their minds and hearts? It's impossible, right? You cannot do it. And after all, we are called to be ambassadors to such a world characterized by darkness and enslavement to sin. How will people ever come to a knowledge of Jesus who is fully God and offers us His righteousness unless we who have been made new tell them? That's our mission, right? Our mission is not to cloister together in holy huddles. Our mission is to take this good news without fear into the world. So how do we maintain vigilance in such a hostile culture? And yet at the same time fulfill our mission to take the good news to the culture. Well, Jesus prayed to the Father on our behalf concerning this very tension. Jesus says to the Father in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. How do we live in the tension between vigilance to the culture, which is bombarding us with false gospels, yet still engaging it with with optimism and truth? Well, we, we live in the light of what Jesus prayed here, and the wonder of John 17 is Jesus is still praying this on our behalf. That's a It's an amazing thing to think about, and the Father always answers the prayers of the Son, and so so we come together as God's people. That's why we're here this morning, to be comforted in the gospel, to be called to vigilance to the things that would, would distract us and betray our confidence in Jesus, and then with humble confidence and optimism going back into the culture. So today, we are the church gathered. In a few moments, we will be the church deployed. And we live in that rhythm, gathering and deploying and gathering and deploying, comforted in the gospel, being made aware of the things which would trip us up, finding our confidence in Jesus and taking that confidence winsomely to the world that so desperately needs it. So, we are constantly bombarded with empty and harmful temptations to find our satisfaction and security in things other than Christ. But, We must be vigilant toward and discerning of the dangers, and furthermore, in verses 9 through 10, let us embrace and rest in Jesus every day. So what's the the first implication of this bombardment about which we must be aware? First, let us be vigilant and discerning. And then next, verses 9 and 10, let us embrace and rest in Jesus every day. Why? Because we forget the truth. And what's the truth? We don't need filling from anything else because Jesus is the fullness of God. And furthermore, and this is the almost too good to be true proclamation of this text, He who is the fullness of God has filled us. That's fascinating. If He's the fullness of God, And we've been filled in Him, and I've asked you this question a few times as we've worked through Colossians. He's the fullness of God, and we've been filled in Him. What else do we need? And the answer, church, is nothing. We need nothing else. Paul has already said in chapter 1, verse 19, that Jesus is the fullness of God, and He comes back to this truth again because He he wants these Colossian believers to not be distracted, to not give in to the bombardment of the false gospels that are constantly ringing in their ears, and we are the same today. Jesus is God in the flesh. In John 1.1, He has proclaimed to be the Word, the Word who was with God and was God. In John 1.14, this Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 18 of John 1, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus is the fullness of God, and God has been made plain to us through the Son. 
The writer of Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is our Savior, the fullness of God who offers us Himself and fills us with His fullness. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul, who warns the Galatian believers probably in in similar ways that he does here to the Colossians, says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For anything that you try to tack on or add on to Jesus will just enslave you once again. Don't be deceived. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Ephesians chapter 3. In verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul famously says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How will God be glorified here in this church as we hold fast to Jesus who is our only hope. So my friends, be aware that preaching, sermonizing is constantly going on. And as long as we walk in this fallen world and await the restoration of all things, we will be bombarded with empty and harmful temptations to find our satisfaction and security in things other than Christ. How do we respond? Let's be vigilant. Let's be discerning, and let us embrace and rest in Jesus every single day. Be preaching the gospel and all of its too-good-to-be-trueness to yourself all of the time. How will we know if we are finding our satisfaction in Jesus alone? How will we know that we are living in light of the truth, that we are complete in Jesus and lack nothing, that He doesn't look at us as deficient, but has offered us His Son and sees us in Him and is completely satisfied in us. How will we know? What will characterize such people? Let me just make a few suggestions. This is not comprehensive. We'll close. What about when you're suffering? Those who are suffering. How will people who are suffering know that they are coming to grips with, because this is a lifelong process, you will not walk out of here today forever changed with no problems ever again. How will you know if you are a suffering today that you are complete in Jesus and living in light of this? Well, 
You will not seek placebos. You will not be satisfied with empty substitutes. You will be willing to come to grips with the fact that there are no quick fixes through substances or through other people. Rather, you who suffer today and we all who will suffer in days to come will walk by faith in the One who has offered us Himself and trust Him despite the suffering that we face, low level or high level though it may be. What about those who crave? Which if we could take a few moments and be quiet, would have to admit as all of us, we crave. We were made to crave. People who crave yet know they are complete in Christ are thankful for what they have. But they always see the gifts that they have been given as beams of light that draw their attention back to the source of all good things. What about those who love and long to be loved? That's all of us. Such people won't posture. They won't be so defensive when critiqued. They know that they are complete in Christ and anything bad said about them probably only scratches the surface of what's actually true. Such people are quick to repent. They are not marked by defensiveness or deflection. They are eager to forgive. They take joy in laying their lives down and loving others sacrificially. They pursue humility. And after being in their presence, you feel that you have been cared for well. They don't judge but affirm. They comfort and they help others who are struggling. In other words, they are so satisfied in Jesus that they are willing to not be made much of. And they make much of Jesus by laying their lives down for one another. This is just suggestive. But may it be true of our church that these graces, these virtues, and more are true of us. So, I say to you, my friends, be vigilant to the preaching that's constantly going on around you. You are not deficient. If you are in Jesus, you have all that you need, even if it seems too good to be true. So be aware, be on guard, and remind yourself and one another daily that Jesus is the fullness of God and you've been filled in Him. Do not give in to these other Gospels. Hold fast to Jesus and He will hold fast to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now I pray that by Your Spirit You will take these words. And you will implant them deeply within our minds and hearts and accomplish all of those things that are needed to change the way that we think, the way that we feel, and the things that we treasure. May we find our satisfaction in none other than you. We give you thanks this morning that above all the gifts that you have given us, you have given us yourself. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be Emmanuel. God with us, to redeem us from the curse, to avert your wrath that we justly deserve, 
and do instead in its place give us His righteousness and restore us to You eternally. So, Father, remind us by Your Spirit and through the gift of Your Word that He who is the fullness of God has filled us. May we seek nothing else. And we pray these things in His name. Amen.